Hello and welcome to Birdcast, a podcast looking at all iterations of Nigel Mill stories on film, TV and radio. In the concluding part of our look at Nigel Mill's lost stories, we examine the controversy of The Big Big Giggle, why the Wednesday plays are less well-remembered than other missing work, and wonder, did Nigel invent George Riding? But first, Toby Haydell talks about the practicalities of adapting Neil for radio. So when you did the adaptation, this isn't taking the camera scripts and adapting them you wrote from scratch? Well, no, no, I mean, I had, I had the script. A lot, of, a lot of the dialogue is retained, but I did sort of start from the beginning. And, and radio, of course, you have uh, various obligations in terms of placing people. There are certain practical considerations when you're writing a radio play that Charlotte, the producer, was very good at going, that we, we don't know they've moved there. You have to have a scene where the, the cart gets stuck in the mud just to remind people how everyone's there getting there. And she's, she's brilliant at all of that sort of thing. So she'd say, we need a scene here that do, does this, or we need a couple of lines here that do this. I, I mean, Cobb's dialogue is so good. I wanted to keep as much of that uh, as possible. Although there were a couple of lines that, um, that, that, I'm, uh, that, that I know Charlotte really liked that turned out to be mine, which I was delighted with. But all this stuff about um, coffee beans and all of that sort of thing is absolutely glorious. And, and you try to keep as much of that as you can because, because I, I didn't, I, it was important to me, I think because I'm a fan of all of this stuff and, a, and an anarchy archivist is that I didn't want to do Toby Haydoke's version of The Road, I wanted to introduce Nigel Neal's lost play, The Road, to as many people as possible. And as we haven't got it, the only, and, and the only way I could make it is because I had an inroad into radio was to do a radio version. But uh, there was an element of historical preservation there. I didn't want to, what they'd done with the stone tape, they'd done a radical rewrite of it but the stone tape exists it did, yes, you can um, so i think but i didn't want to suddenly invent different characters um uh, and and put my own opinions onto what nigel neal was trying to say i was trying to convey nigel neal's message in the way and with the characters that he did but in a streamlined version that had to have certain radio practicalities thrown in as a result of that it meant that there were certain additions and changes that were dictated by the, not dictated in the, in the pejorative sense, but by the producer saying, look, we, we need to do, to tell the story more effectively, we need to do a bit of this. So that's why we have, we keep chopping backwards and forwards in my version from the, the guy setting up the, the, the traps in the wood and, the, and, the, and, and bumping into Tetsi in the wood um, and then cutting back to the inn where the philosophical conversations are, are happening. So you've got the sort of ghost story there and, 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 uh, and, and the finding of the bones and all of that sort of thing, which is, which is all an invention of, of my version. And then at the end, the, the big change at the end was that for the haunting, as it were, you have these voices of a, of, of a mother and a child, which aren't in the original but that was because the original is much more of a cacophony of noise, yeah. but that's juxtaposed with the shock on the faces and the period costumes mm-hmm. of the characters that you can see, which we of course didn't have. So you needed an anchor in the play, in the teleplay, it's a visual anchor of that juxtaposition between the noises of the haunting and, and the ghost hunters. And in ours, the anchor had to be a little mini story within that haunting that was much more grabbed fragments of noise, which we still had but we had that sort of through line of the, of the mother and the daughter. Um, 
we also used some of the Mark Ayres gave me the original sound effects so we used some of the original sound effects from the original TV version in our haunting just as a nice little nod and the rest of it you'll notice none of the actors are credited because we didn't have any money so we just got Nigel Neal's biographer is one of the voices of uh, the hauntings in amazing the brilliant as as uh, um, as are various um, uh, people well known from other television programs who were sort of moonlighting, uh, but uh, history will have to dig those names out. Is there any visual material available for the original adaptation to grow the tools? About three photographs, I think, Andy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that's it. And that's just people in, uh, were they re rehearsal shots or just recording shots or people? Publicity shots of, Publicity uh, shots, yeah. of, of John Phillips and James Maxwell and Maxwell, and there's one of um, there's one with Jethro in as well, isn't there? When they're in the wood, yeah, so just, yeah, just sort of publicity in costume shots. Did you have any say in the casting? Yes, fortunately with Charlotte, um, she entirely trusts me, so I had to say in all of the, I suggested people for all of the casting, but, but because I only know old actors, I didn't know anyone particularly to suggest for the part of Tetsy uh, and I didn't know Susan Wacoma so um, but th they'd worked with her I and I'd been suggesting much younger sounding people so I, I didn't know her but everybody else yeah was a suggestion of mine we had other suggestions as well we were going for very different casting actually for the for the squire but uh, Adrian Scarborough was a sort of light bulb moment and I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Mark was always on board from where, I mean, Mark was part of the pitch, even though we hadn't asked him then, you had to sort of go, Mark Gatiss would probably be very interested in being in this. And then when it looked like it was happening, I was then able to email him and say, would you be on board? And he said, absolutely. Uh, and then he had some suggestions for casting as well. A lot of people were not available. We did have somebody else for the Squire who then suddenly couldn't do it quite late on, who was quite a, a very big name. Uh, and then Francis McGee is an old friend of mine and they were excited because he was in Game of Thrones. Ralph Ines and I didn't actually suggest, I'd suggested a couple of other people. And then one of the production assistants had always wanted to work with Ralph Ines and I went, but it's the smallest part. He'll never do it. And they went, no, no, he likes doing radio. So I went, all right. And he said, yes. And then um, Petty Morahan was obvious choice because she's a brilliant radio actress, but her dad directed the original. Course, so, I, yes, yeah, yeah. I, so I suggested her on that basis and Charlotte went, oh, I've worked with Hattie loads of times. She's great. So that was a, a, a happy confluence. And then Colin McFarlane, who's a superb actor, I'd worked with years and years and years ago in, in theatre. And he won't have remembered because I was just a spear carrier. Um, but he's got such a great voice. His voice I, is amazing. It's so, yeah. so rich. Yeah. And, and, and that's quite a tricky, tricky part. And, um, yeah. and I think it needed somebody with real sort of dignity and, and he took it really seriously. And he sent loads of questions, and uh, and I th and, and, and I, yeah, that voice of his is great. So yeah, I, I'm fortunate with Charlotte in that I'm always allowed to suggest people. Well, I mean, like with I suppose the ultra uh, cautious world of casting directors and, and 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 TV, a writer I suppose there's always a chance of writer to have that freedom, but also you'll probably know someone within the BBC who's got quite a good rolodex of contacts of actors anyway that you might be able to to, to suggest. Well, and for, the, and for those two, the two guys in the wood, we, I mean, I, I suggested, you know, six or seven people for each one and I would have been happy with that. The other side of it, when you're an actor, the other side of it, when you're casting, you go, oh, I'd have loved to have been in that. Why was I in that? There were any number of people I would have loved to have had in it who had 
Francis not said yes yeah. would have been the next person to be asked. And as I say, even the fifth or sixth or seventh person on that list is a really good actor that I would have been lucky to have. Um, unfortunately for actors, casting is a buyer's market. Mm. You know, those character parts are very, very easily filled with top-notch character players. I suppose it helps that, like, it's not such a big commitment to do radio. It's a day or two in studio. You haven't got costumes. You haven't got to particularly un get very far. Yeah, with us, it was a day in studio. Yeah, yeah which meant it was quite... It was a long day. I would have preferred a bit of extra time, and I know Charlotte would have done. We had a big post-production, had the longest post-production of anything she'd ever worked on, and she's done lots of radio because she set special time aside for the... So the haunting was done... The, the main bulk of it was done at Maida Vale, um, which was rather lovely, because I think that's where the Radiophonic Workshop recorded the original sound effects from. Mm. Um, so that was a nice... The ghosts in the building were echoing through time. And that was an accident. That just, I, you know, that was just one of those lovely coincidences. But then the haunting bit was done in Manchester with <laughs> everyone we knew and some people I was in a play with. Uh, and uh, uh, and the, the voice of the child is Charlotte's daughter. Um, uh, and that was done on a, a, at a different time when we could just all get together. Um, and then the post-production was a, was a big old session with a very senior... Um, sound effects person and editor that took a lot of a lot of debate in order to get right should we have the siren for example um, which which I kind of thought I said I said no because I asked an MP and said what what would happen if this happened nowadays and they said and I asked an, an ex um, policeman in cash terrorism um, and said you know what would happen uh, and, and it was felt that the siren was a very 60s mm. thing. And because the play was written in the 60s, we needed it to feel like a modern version. So you've got references to the internet and stuff like that. But I don't know if the siren... And then uh, year, when Years and Years was on, and there was a, a, a similar event needed to be done, first thing that happens is the siren. Because right. it's yeah, in, in, in the same way that Vikings have helmets. Because, yeah, I'll, I'll, horn, sorry, I'll, because I'll, that's what people expect. Well. Oh, bloody hell. Why did, why did I think? <laughs> but, but to be fair, it, it wasn't just me that covered it because the, the sound editor had suggested it to Charlotte, the producer, and Charlotte said, no, let's try and do it without. And I, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it would have been harmed having the siren now, but at the time it felt important not to because I was worried that the listener might think they were listening to, that it was set in, that bit was the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. But of course, they'd only think that if they knew about the original. Well, maybe so. I mean, there's a large number of people would have listened to it on on radio, knowing that they could, because this is the only chance they'll get to experience experience the work. But hopefully, there were there were people who would listen anyway who might otherwise not have watched a yeah. John Neal sci-fi ghost story, whatever, whatever thing you want to get it. But it's not available commercially, is it? Your your option? Is it never? No. Um, they they sort of stopped releasing stuff on CD nowadays, haven't they? I can't even get it on download. Well, I, yeah, we should look into that because they were very happy with it because it was commissioned as an afternoon play and ended up going out as a Halloween fright yep, night. Did, yeah. So we were promoted. So they were they were delighted by how it turned out. Um, it was the same night as the Inside Number 9 live episode, wasn't it? Uh, oh, Or, or yeah. that, that week anyway. Yeah, it was around the time, yeah. Yeah, that would um, be, that maybe be an absolute... Yeah, no, it definitely, yeah. it definitely was because, because I think we went... And listen to it in the 
in the afternoon, didn't we, Andy, live at, uh, at home? But yeah, and I missed the Inside Number Nine episode because I, well, no, I watched it, but I don't remember anything about it because I'd had too much celebratory <laughs> champagne. So then I had to rewatch the Inside Number Nine. So yes, that's absolutely correct. A good day for sci-fi and fantasy. <laughs> was the, the road, the original um, road, was that particularly well received uh, for such, such dramas? Do you have any contemporary reviews? of? Yeah, it doesn't get an awful lot of attention. Um, but uh, let's just have a look. Yeah, because I've got, I've, got I've got the bits of the times. Uh, you have these for your uh, adaptation, by the way. Yeah, we we. Uh, <laughs> the I think it was the Times when they'd asked for lots of preview stuff, and, and I think it was the Times when uh, they said, "Oh, you know, we've sent you a copy or something. You, you know, it might be worth previewing this because it's had some, you know, good traction." And, the, and I think it was the one from the Times said, uh, "Oh yeah, just listen to it. Great fun." <laughs> you go. And, great, and the, and, and great, a bit more. Come on, great fun, know. and also great fun. Have you, have you <laughs> really listened to it that intently? But because, of course, it's because it's genre. It's never going to be anything other than, you know. No, but I have a term. I often term that this. I often term something fun when what I mean is I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and then that, that is that that, that that is that is fun. Quite a match in the pit. It's great fun to me because it's really, really good, and I really, really like it. It doesn't necessarily fun would not be not be how I'd review something. This is this is huge fun, but I can see why people would read that in it. Anyway, but what was the contemporary? Uh, yeah, I mean, I did not. I mean, the, the Times sort of said it's a bit of a disappointment. Um, it devoted neither pity nor terror, failed to grip the imagination. Its only justification was that it vindicated once again the true searcher after knowledge and toppled the practical man from his pedestal. I mean, that's the most, that's the, I think that's the great interesting thing about it is that Cobb, who is, uh, you know, set up as the very dislikable character, although you like him because he says funny things and he's got rich dialogue. Um, the, the person who looks like the force for good and, and in these things often is, is the, the inventor, the, the modernist uh, is actually, and this is where that sort of was how conservative or not was Nigel Neal, because you think, well, because because the 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 moral of the story is actually the bellicose drunk lecherous guy from London is uh, is actually right uh, in one sense in that the tinkerers, the people who try and do things with science, are the ones who will dis destroy us all, which is an interesting message when you come to it. I think it's lovely because it just gives us one of the great twists in television. Uh, uh, science fiction, but it didn't make that much of a. It didn't make that much of a, a, a an impact with contemporary um, critics and stuff. But of course, loads of people who watched it went, "Oh, I remember this play, and it was a haunting, and the ending was this." Um, uh, really stuck with people, then, yeah. Yeah, it really did stuck with people. Um, but there's only there's only sort of two or three reviews and they sort of say yeah it was well acted and it was okay but nobody goes my god that was extraordinary but i think because when when you're making groundbreaking television people don't realize it until afterwards i think often no does any of um the first night anthology survive you know i don't know, no. I don't know. there was a remake of the road obviously a even before the radio remake, which remade for Australian television the year after. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. That's lost yeah. as well. It doesn't exist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
the road only leads in one direction. <laughs> so before we move on to the other late stuff in the, the, the 60s and the 70s, although we're probably limited into talking about unmade Nigel Neal as opposed to as opposed to missing Nigel Neal, not least of which because certain themes are as with all unmade things, certain ideas are, um, are recycled, reused. But probably the most notable of Nigel's works that that is uh, what was, was unmade is is the big big giggle. Um, Andy, what was what was significant about that, and we're thinking why why did that not get made? It's got, I mean, it's it's significant just in terms of the 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 scale of it, really, the size of it. In that, you know, we're talking here a lot about one-off plays that that he wrote, and obviously he, he'll forever be known as the Quatermass Man, and he wrote those four serials. This is the only other original serial that he wrote, other than a Quatermass, but it just didn't get made. Um, yeah, oh, you know, the serial as opposed to ooh. story, right? Yeah, so sort of six hours of television, a full sort of you know, piece of work. But also kind of the, well, for, for anybody who doesn't, anybody who hasn't seen it, which is everybody, um, it's basically, a, it's set in the future as well, kind of explicitly set in the future. Not something he did an awful lot. The, the Quatermass serials are kind of nominally set in a few years hence, but it doesn't really amount to much. But this is sort of very obviously set a few years in the future. And it's about a youth cult which is something that he kind of comes to write about quite a lot uh, after this. A youth cult called the Grads, who go around wearing graduation gowns. And the idea is that they're taking this kind of fictional drug called teardrops, which is sort of very LSD-like, which gives them knowledge. And there are all these scenes that they've been kind of taking it for the first time and just sort of staring into the distance saying, I know, I know. So Grads, as in, you know, they have this knowledge. Uh, and the story is basically about a detective inspector called Bean, sort of way in advance of uh, anything that uh, Rowan Atkins thought, uh, who's on the case of this, who's kind of keeping an eye on what, what these this cult are up to. And then at a particular point, one of the grads, he's called Boggo, um, crashes his car. And he's basically joyriding. Naturally, he's only joyriding as well, so there you go. Crashes his car, kills himself, and the grads, are, apart from drugs, they're very interested in music as well. And there's this fictional sort of pop song in the story. And they take that song and they change it, change the lyrics so it tells the story of Boko and tells the story of what he did and how great it was that he killed himself. So suddenly this, there's a whole new sort of um, drive to the grads is that they're committing suicide. So it becomes a youth suicide cult. Wow. And initially it's kind of like in isolated incidents, but then it becomes clear because, you know, you've got this de detective inspector character who's kind of, you know, sort of looking into it all. It becomes clear that there's plans for a huge mass suicide for literally, you know, uh, teams of young people just kind of shoving themselves off cliffs en masse in a kind of coordinated suicide. Uh, and the kind of personal element of this is that he's got kids and obviously they sure enough they get involved in it and it kind of becomes a, a personal matter for him so uh, you yeah. can see where elements for that for were probably fed into Quatermass 4 absolutely with, yeah with, with, with. It, it is one of these turning points and you kind of look at it and you know it was written paid for BBC started you know sort of scouting for locations and things uh, the story is that basically they 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 got cold feet because they thought if any young person commits suicide while this is on, we're, we've, you know, we've had it. 
Um, so they talked about compressing it from six parts down to four or maybe two, basically just so that by law of averages, there was less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And eventually they just thought it's going to be very expensive. It's really contentious. We're not going to do it. And he took it off, actually, and he, he sort of tried to interest people in, in making it as a film. That didn't happen either. Um, but just in terms of if this had been made, it is a real sort of, you know, it's a sliding doors moment. If this had been made, obviously it would have impacted on the fact that things like the fourth Quatermass really heavily draw on it. So presumably that would have never happened. Where would this have taken his career? It's a really, really interesting one in that respect, I think. Thinking of like uh, youth cults and the danger of the danger of youth, particularly in the end of Quatermass 4 when it's sold by his dad's army of, of scientists. But you've got, I mean, Clockwork Orange, I know the films, right, yeah. but you've got the, the book is, is early 60s, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, is there any influence, do you think, of... Um, yeah, I think I've totally seen that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and even things like sort of mods and rockers and just the whole sort yeah. of phenomenon of sort of youth, youth cults and sort of, you know... Yeah. I'm also I think, dying to bring up Psychomania, Don Sharp's film. Have you ever seen? Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's it as well. I'm just um, suicide cult of bikers. But of course, if you if you kill yourself with true belief, you come back alive as a as a biker zombie. That's what they had to work with. I like the fact it's George Sanders' last last film. It's, you can, I can't help feeling that there was some, if not coincidence, some some level of some level of interest. That if they'd have made it into a film, that's something along the lines of what you how it might be viewed now, rather than if it was taking. I don't need that better than I, but taking his career in a new direction. If it was TV, I agree that it might have the impact. But if it was film, depending on how the film was distributed, yeah. could you be in a in a psychomania situation or no? something that will get will get a cult traction once once flip side release it, release it or something i don't know but that's... that's that's the meaning of the title obviously is big big giggle is suicide yeah is the, is the ending your own life what a laugh yeah. so that heavy stuff yeah i mean that does does that speak uh, much of, of of nigel's belief in in, in youth and youth culture or Oof, that's a whole kind of beans you're opening yeah. there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a question. I'm not, I'm not, no, I, I, do you know what? I think, and if you look at a lot of these credits from this time and things like this that weren't made, that whole sort of period of the 60s, I'm convinced that the, the sort of, the, the most important influence on them is the fact that he's a parent now. Um, you know, and he's not a young man. You sort of see, you know, that kind of baby boomer generation as being a big generation gap. He wasn't on the side of the baby boomers. He was, you know, a middle-aged man, with, married with two kids, looking at his kids growing up, looking at the world around him. It's really, I mean, we'll sort of come on to it more, but a lot of those, this and a lot of the sort of later 60s uh, stuff that he's writing, you can see that the initial impulse is obviously him reading about something in a news story and getting angry. And that's the impulse as he dramatizes this, this thing that's angered him, which isn't kind of the, not necessarily the case with Quatermass or the creature and that, but he's reading out the world and he's, he's angry about it. And you get the sense that he's angry about the world that his children are growing up in. You look at the road, you look at the crunch, they're absolutely about, you know, the threat of, uh, you know, nuclear catastrophe. And, you know, you even have characters, a character in the crunch who talks about little kids and how terrible it would be for little kids who don't even know the world that they've been born into. And, it, and he's, he's worried about children, I think. Um, so don't, I think, you know, there is kind of this argument, oh, Nigel Neal hated young people. I don't think he did, but I, I think he was certainly concerned about some of the way that the world was going. And he was, he was concerned that the world should be that you should save those young people from the worlds that they that, that around them almost really in some ways 
Yeah, and the, and the, the young always seem to have some sort of um, primal connection with the earth that we lose as we get older, you know. So this, this casting of him, this casual casting of him as a sort of reactionary, I think is, is wrong. He exploits the differences for drama. That doesn't necessarily mean he's disdainful of, of the youth. He just identifies that, um, that, that there's a schism and, and yeah. that the, the young and the old have different properties, if you like. And, you know, the crunch is interesting because it's got all that stuff of, um, you know, you know, it rejects any idea of it being reactionary because all that, the, the disdain with which our, our sort of co colony mentality and, 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 our, and our attempts to anglicise those people because he's called Mr. Ken, isn't he? And things like that. And the, and the casting off of that for the more sort of mystical and again primal, um, uh, it, 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 you know, that, and that takes him back to the sort of mystical side of him. But it, it, it is a sort of re rejection of the, of the reactionary, isn't it? How long did did Nigel um, persevere with the big, the big big giggle? Is it over a period of years, or does he keep coming back to it? Uh, no, I, I think he, well, he re, re, reworked it when there was sort of this idea that they might change it from a six-parter to four-parter, two-parter, and then a film. So he, he kind of rewrote it um, various times, but I think it's only really a couple of years. And he's, there were other things going on at the time. I don't think it was necessarily kind of, you know, a, a pet project or anything like that. But then again, he put a lot of effort into it. You know, he'd written an entire six-part serial, so you can't really blame him for trying to get something out of it. But it's absolutely, I mean, you know, the, the, the end scene is, you know, this uh, detective inspector trying to save his children who got mixed up in this suicide call, mm -hmm. who are trying to throw themselves off. So the parallels with the, the fourth grade mass are absolutely there. You can see that there's an idea which doesn't get made and then kind of evolves into something else, into greater mass story, and then evolves again. That doesn't get made, I'm sure. So as the 60s goes on, he does a, he does a few more films. He works with Hammer, he does, uh, he does The Witches, doesn't he? He does, yeah. and he does the, um, he does the Hammer Quite a Mess in the Pits, which the poster for The Witches appears in, in Hobbs in, in Hobbs End Station. So I like to think that Nigel Neal exists in the Nigel Neal, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Quite a Mess universe. So does Michael Ripper. So wait, so when you see Nigel Neal in Quatermass in the Pit, that's that's Nigel Neal. Wow. Oh, Captain. No, I was thinking because his name will be on that poster somewhere on on the Hobbsland on the on the Hobbsland set. I don't know if who's also the guy who plays Captain Potter. His name I've just forgotten. Is in The Witches as well. Brian Marshall. Brian Marshall. That's as well. Yeah, he's in The Witches as well, isn't he? So he has a doppelganger somewhere in the real in in the real. Anyway, but uh, apart from that slightly arrogant digression, um, when he goes to work for the telly again, he has only done um, the crunch for ITV. He's back and he does a new version of um, 84 for five. Yeah. He does Year of the Sex Olympics for the same for the, the same strand, which we've, we've covered before. But then he does a couple of things for the Wednesday play. He does Bam, Pow, Zap and Wine of India. Yeah. Um, are they again? Are they? I, was he commissioned for those? Did he approach uh, for those, or how did how did that work? Um, I know with, with the, the story with Year of the Sex, you know, there is kind of a, a gap in his, his CV before Year of the Sex Olympics, and the story is that he was asked to write a new play for the BBC, had not written one for a while, mm -hmm. and basically this bugbear came up again of, I'll write for you if we sort this out. This kind of uh, bugbear that he had about the, the selling of the rights, the Great Mass Experiment. And that was sorted out at quite a high level. So it was almost like, right, great, okay, off we go. And 
and again, as I was saying, you sort of earlier, you know, the fact that he's been writing all these film scripts that haven't got made, and it's almost like you know, sufficient energy has built up that now when he's got this this ability to write one-off TV plays again, and his, his BBC relationships kind of mended, there's this kind of brief flood uh, of one-off plays where he's creating original stuff which he hasn't done really for a few years at that point. Um, so what do we know about um, Ban Powell's app? That's interesting because it ties in with the it ties in with the youth thing as well. And that, it's interesting looking now because uh, it's a play that is not talked about much. That mm. got quite a lot of very positive feedback in the press. Really? Slightly, the, the road did get so the Daily Mail liked the road. There were a couple of nice reviews of the road, but but uh, compared to the sort of attention a Neil play gets, uh, the Vampire's app got got much more. Um, and it's I think we don't talk about it much because it's not it's not fantastical, but it does have that um, obsession is the wrong word, but it th thematically it has the, uh, the the gulf between young and old. It's about the assault. Uh, of, a, of an old, uh, of a wages clerk by a young man, and the assault is not comic strip violence, it's actually proper, and a lot of write-ups say this, quite graphic and nastily done, and he gets clobbered and hit on the head, uh, and that never quite properly recovers from that injury. His personality changes, and he ends up as a wheelchair user uh, and loses his men mental faculties. But the young man, uh, who, through a mixture of curiosity and guilt, um, starts dating the guy's daughter, then starts becoming the guy's lodger, uh, and 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 at one point thinks, well, perhaps I should put the guy out of his misery, but instead doesn't, but actually says, I will stay with you and look after you for the rest of your life. So it's it's about the cleansing of a conscience, but also the gulf between Bampow Zap comic strip violence uh, and and the repercussions of actual violence. And I think yeah, we've, we're talking about. Clockwork Orange, and I think that's one where you definitely can see some element of influence, possibly of, it, of his interest in sort of violent youth cults and and what they're up to. And it also it even reminds me slightly, it's kind of ahead of the time of uh, Brimstone and Treacle, that sort of thing of sort of infiltrating a household and sort of you know almost in a kind of voyeuristic way, seeing you know the consequences of your actions. It's it's an interesting one, and all those plays around that time are quite unlike what's gone before. Their focus is quite different. They're quite more sort of character-driven than, than this 50s stuff, which is kind of more ideas-driven and plot-driven and sort of big threats to the entire Earth and all this kind of thing. And this is much smaller, much more sort of, much more what you expect, really, from a sort of BBC TV drama from the sort of late 60s and 70s. Uh, <laughs> Do you think there's like a huge level of untapped stuff that Neil would like to have been remembered for, for as much doing the sort of uh, interesting themes in, in, a, in a family of domestic setting as, as, as with the fantastical, but as the fantastical may have a, a, yeah. wider, a wider life, a wider life, a, 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 yeah, a wider life outside of the, the, the normal, um, essentially it's got fans, it's got fans and fans like fantastical things and fans, yeah. fans keep things alive, which is why, you know, the road may be well, well remembered, but it's missing vampires at night. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, it, the, the focus of his writing was changing and he didn't want to be just pigeonholed as writing a certain kind of thing. Um, I think it's interesting at all that really does that TV stuff at that point, because, you know, as we say, he was writing a lot of film scripts that weren't getting made. He's getting paid for them. Mm. I mean, I, I would presume that he got paid about as much for adapting 
um, look back in anger as he had for pretty much his entire BBC career. Mm. I don't know what the figures are. But, you know, he's getting handsomely paid. So it's not about having to put food on the table. It's more about, okay, if I go back to television, there's always that. Um, that's still that's not really the case anymore because television's more sort of regarded as, as almost sort of having this parity with, with film now. But at the time, that would have been this idea that he had graduated from television. Actually, I'm just just thinking of this, going back a bit, but who approached um, Nigel to do the Woodfall films? He doesn't uh, seem not an obvious person to work, Joe Osborne doesn't seem but an obvious person. No, I think it was Tony Richardson, because he worked with Tony Richardson on on some of the the sort of... Some stuff about theatres and stuff, yeah. So there was almost like, the way he puts it, was there was almost like a sort of standing agreement that, okay, as soon as you get out of the BBC, as soon as you're clear, they will come and work for, for film, yeah. Um, so just just the fact that he's obviously taking a much smaller paycheck for those those BBC plays, but that's fine because it, it's fulfilling something that those those other uh, sort of film projects haven't. Um, lucrative as they were, they weren't as creatively satisfying, presumably. So now we can yeah, tap yeah. that. And, and it's interesting. A theme that crops up throughout all of Neil's stuff is that often his characters are seen through the lens of media and broadcast. So, you know, the Quatermass Experiments first episode, The Rocket, is um, the, the, the landing is seen through the lens of the, the visiting um, news also, yeah. broadcast. You know, Quatermass... I can see this massive crowd just, just, just over there. Yeah, over yeah. There. Quatermass of the Pit has a news broadcast in it and then we cut to people watching it in a pub. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, the, 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 the sort of story of television and broadcast... Uh, and even in something like the Stone Take, the recording, you know, that the, the media is, is is a constant presence, and and Bam Powers App is also has that that concern, but also that that pull between the conservative and the radical, you know, the radical television writer who who who, who stretches ideas, but who is also um, and does grown-up stuff that is not for the tinies, as it were, as it, to, to, to use his own parlance, but who is also, and, and I think this is instructive, what he writes about Van Powell's app at the time, perhaps he says, it is time to end the fun. Let us remind ourselves that bam is the sound of human bone cracking, pow is the echo of a plundered brain case, and zap, the crunch of living tissue. So it's his riposte to comic strip violence and it's a great title because it's the you know it's the batman stuff but but he's a, so this is actually the television pioneer going hold on folks i think we've gone a little bit too far and that 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 thing about about sort of sanitized violence that he was always slightly concerned about is was one of his stated reasons for not liking doctor who is that he thought it was too too violent yeah, scary for kids uh, yeah. yeah yeah he's got he's in that late night lineup with Roger lambert isn't he where he where they disagree about yeah and we don't have that sadly but i'm no. uh, well because you presumably work together the transcript on... exists somewhere which yeah. i'm gonna find um well, presumably they've actually presumed she was she well, he worked for houston films didn't he she was yeah uh, exactly on that. so that was as well um but if uh bam pow zap is one of those that um is very much based in the the here and now with real consequences for real actions in, in real society then um at least the setting if not the themes of wine of india are are again into the in, in, into the realms of should we say speculative fiction yeah. and it's like a television program yes it's not the premise is 
basically the funeral of two living people. You mm -hmm. live in a sort of Logan's Run type society where you get to a certain age. Um, so the main protagonists are in their 70s, but they're played by 40-year-old actors. This case, uh, Brian Blessed and Annette Crosby. Um, and it's their sort of farewell ceremony. But it's run by a sort of camp producer type who's sort of holding the show together and he's just going to go and do the one next door and then he's got a floor manager and all that sort of thing. So again, it's told through the lens of a television programme, even though it's not a television programme, but the funeral is run like one. Uh, it was it was, uh, it was Jack Kine. Jack Kine, I remember, thought it was a work of genius. Told me if I wanted to want to see what a genius Nigel Neal was, that, that Wine of India was... Uh, was uh, I, I, it's it's quite slight, I think, by today's comparisons, but it still has interesting things to say. And they, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's it's certainly interesting for being set in quite a far future, which isn't something he kind of generally dealt with. I was thinking that when I wrote the biography, the publishers, it's called Into the Unknown, publishers wanted to have it to have subtitle, and they suggested it be called The Fantastic Worlds of Nigel Neal. And I kind of had to say some, I know what you mean, but. He didn't really do fantastic worlds. He doesn't really write space aliens or the future. He does it very, very occasionally. So this is quite a rare instance. Uh, this kind of this and year of the sex Olympics really are the two obvious ones where he's really sort of saying, this is where we might end up. Yes, um, 2050. Yes, yeah. but it's also, and which, God, that isn't, that's only 30 years away. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, but obviously not, not, in, not in 1970. Uh, yeah, I will. I've just realised it's also 50 years away. We're midway I, between when this was made and when this is set. We, we will all be the age that the central characters are uh, in Wine of India. Um, but we'll be dead in three years anyway. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to this government. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it, yes, it's a Logan's run, but you, the cutoff, isn't it? The cutoff is 100 with the idea being that natural people will naturally age, uh, you will, you will, you will, will but, li live longer. But there's something, isn't there, Andy, about, about how people, you have to apply and certain people get different, they get, they yeah, get yeah. allocated different ages. So I think John Standing's there, isn't he? He's a bit ah, jealous. Okay, right. He's a bit jealous because somebody gets 82 and he's only got 76 or whatever. And, the, and the, one of the twists is that you think, um, you think that um, uh, Brian, it's, you think that one of them is, oh, what's the twist? It's, it, it's, you think that it's, it's, it's Annette Crosby's funeral and that Brian Blessed's go along with her, but it's actually the other way round and that she could have lived longer had she chosen to. She's been allocated, she'd got another five years in her allocation yeah. or whatever, but she's actually decided to go at the same time as him rather than live out her allocation. And I think yeah. a lot of the family are sort of gossiping yeah. and going, um, why is he why is he dying at the same time as her? He could have lived a bit longer, but actually it's it's the other way he around. Want, yeah. So the sacrifices the the person sacrificing himself is not the one you think it is. And that's that's only a minor sort of sub twist. The the, the, the main twist is that there's this old person turns up who's aged naturally. Because it's not just that you're given the allocation, it's that you know your your aging process is held at bay. Yeah. You live to 76 as a 40-year-old, and this old person turns up um, and causes consternation. Uh, uh, and it turns out that actually the TV producer, i.e. funeral director, had actually let that person in because seeing the aged, wizened, naturally aged person 
is enough to make the Annette Crosby person who's got her doubts about going to her death go, oh, oh no, it's what, it's what pushes her to actually do it. So it was all orchestrated. Um, all the drama was orchestrated by the producer slash funeral director. Is that right? Would you say that's... Yeah, yeah that's right. I'm going to say it's quite striking that, you, that Neil was a big reader of you scientists and obviously you can kind of see that he's maybe reading about transplant surgery and sort of you know how long we're all going to live and actually it's not a great deal of sort of distance between wine of india and cybermen the sort of the initial thing of where is this going to take us it's the same the, the same kind of thoughts of you know where where are we going to end up with this he wouldn't have liked that though and, and, and the dark side of an apparent utopia you know the the, the yeah the, the the other side of the coin of living a long time in, in, in good health you know the emotional and moral ramifications yeah. of, of, of that supposed brave new world he wouldn't have liked it in the cybermen and certainly not in april 1970 when every time he turned doctor who on he was just what he was just watching derek sherwin's version of doctor who or quatermass <laughs> essentially throw, thrown back at him i never I, as a child as, i've did this i think with you, with, you, with you guys before but it was, i can now really can't watch season seven anymore after going through the quatermass it's particularly quatermass too quatermass and the ambassadors of death yeah, yeah. <laughs> that first episode of quatermass too bolts it's just they might as well have called they might as well have called john Perkins first story bolts from space or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> sam Seeley's character even the cutaway shows yeah it's the same shot isn't it yeah um, it is yeah. looming over the uh looming over the the, the meteor yeah well, anyway that's not that from, uh, about that. so the only well, so how was um do you know how wine of india was received yeah people liked it as sort of a, a, a it has a chilling conviction um, i'm wondering sorry i'm wondering if um, if, you, if both Van Powzak and Wine of India have better uh, contemporary reviews or, or make more of an impact than, than, than The Road does, is it because more people are watching the Wednesday play than, than, than that's the new strand? Is that just indicative yeah, of how it's, yeah. how, how it's scheduled? I mean, I've, I've only found, what, four, four reviews of The Road? and I, Typically, I read out the bad one. The other's pretty good. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, Van Powzak and Wine of India, I've got, you know, you know, six, seven, eight, um, uh, and uh, yeah, maybe it's the strand, maybe it's the time of year, maybe it's uh, uh, yeah, wine of India is very like this is your life, um, which is very much, isn't it? It's a sort of life. Yeah. This is your life, just right. Okay, yes, before it ends. Um, uh, uh, and and yeah, it was it was, and I suppose because things that are scientific breakthroughs then that seem quite mundane to us now because they're then new concepts are obviously going to be much more compelling then than they than they would be now um well, if you watch i mean watching the quotamass experiment you're thinking no one's actually gone into space yet gives you a new, a yeah. new appreciation of yeah. what what the unknown is of philip purser always worth listening to said about wine of india uh, apart from its obvious cautionary tale the play whispered nice things about the nature of love and family ties. And it is very much a sort of, you know, character piece. It's got a lot of characters in it, a, a couple of whom only have, you know, minor impact on thematically, but th their presence does mean that the theme gets a slightly different shade or nuance. Uh, good cast too. I mean, yeah. Brian Blessed, Annette Crosby, Ian Ogilvy, John Standing, 
very, you know, very, very decent cast. I think Neil was very taken with it. He sort of singled it out for being one that he, he was quite pleased with. It also seems to be this, in the way that... Sorry, go on. No, no, no. This is a total tangent. I've been, I'm watching, in the middle of watching I, Claudius at the minute. Is that the point when Brian Blessed turns into Brian Blessed? I was going to ask, I would, <laughs> my point was, was going to be this. I was going to say, is it... Because uh, when Splash Gordon's not until like 18, 81. 18, yeah. yeah. So we, we've got a few, we're a couple of years on, but it's when you early Brian Blessed, 60s Brian Blessed, Zed Carlos Brian, Brian, Brian Blessed. Yeah. There's nothing particularly shouty or, huh? or, or caricature well, about him. It's funny yeah. though, I was reading the reviews of Wine of India this morning and a couple of them said, you know, they're nice, nuanced, quiet performances. Mm. But I could only read those in light of now what I know about Brian Blessed. So I'm going, oh, are they saying Brian Blessed's quiet for a change? Of course, of course they're not because, because <laughs> he wasn't Brian Blessed then, but it's almost like they're shouting out to the future. That Brian Blessed didn't shout in this <laughs> So the last significant, we'll come on to the, the, the Jack and Aureus bit in a minute, but the last significant missing um, Nigel Neal story is The Chopper, isn't it? It's yeah. from the final series of Out of the Unknown, um, which has gone from adaptations of classic sci-fi tales with a really big budget strandway. I love, you know, it's famously the, the machine stops going out in the same week I think as Tenth Planet Part One, uh, just to have contrast and how how prestigious the production values are on the various things. But by the fourth series, we're now into original stories, seventies weirdness under under Alan Bromley as opposed to Alan Sugar. Um, was he invited to pitch for this before uh, for for this, or does he have this story of of, of the chopper, and this is where it it, it, it finds a home? I presume he was asked, but I couldn't say for sure. It. He was. Yeah. Was he asked to do a Quatermass story for that? Was that was one story? Yeah, like a two-part, wasn't it? Two-part Quatermass. But is that is that um, the pop, uh, the pop kind of what leads to? I I yeah I I I I thought Neil had been approached to do Out of the Unknown, but I'm I'm happy to be wrong on that. So. Um, I don't think he'd have done a lot of sort of chasing in that respect. I suspect he, he would have been happy to to be the one to be asked rather than one to be do the asking generally. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was very much that if you were doing a science fiction thing, you'd go to the Quatermass guy and he'd often tell you to sod off. <laughs> <laughs> who would he have been approached by? Would he been approached by Bromley or Roger Parks? Who did, Roger, who Parks. Did Roger Parks, yeah. Roger um, Parks, who wrote everything but Doctor Who. In the, yeah. So, what do we know about the chopper, the last significant missing missing Nigel Neal, and one with a very obvious Doctor Who connection? It's a very Nigel Neal story. Um, we started with a haunted telephone, and now yeah, it's yeah. about it's about a haunted motorbike um, that's being sort of uh, consigned to scrap by Doctor Who, uh, Patrick Troughton. Um, and it has it has some very near it's interesting because when you think about the bit in Quatermass and the pit where they recreate what what's uh, uh, what the, the the drilling bit in order to see if they can provoke the memories from Sladden again you know they they set up a, a a haunting they also sort of do that in the stone tape don't they where they they sort of set up all the equipment to try and monitor a haunting in in this you've got a journalist who you think is doing who thinks they're doing a sort of puff piece. On these local characters who are 
convening on this bicycle which belongs to this dead biker who's been going too fast and, and crashed um but they've been hearing the noise of the of the motorcycle so this journalist thinks she's doing a bit about sort of mass you know, mass hallucination or hysteria or whatever um uh, and then decides she's doing a sort of a character piece but they 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 sort of almost try and go through the motions that they've done when they've heard the noise of the motorcycle the previous night. So Patrick Tratton's mechanic has heard it in this couple, this sort of rutting couple who, who have a nocturnal liaison in, in the garage. Um, uh, and, and here, but she, she's the ex-girl, this girl's the ex-girlfriend of the dead biker. So she says she can feel the guy's presence. Um, and uh, so they try and recreate that the next night in order to, for the, for the sort of the ghost to manifest itself. And of course the, uh, the journalist doesn't believe. And then of course, when, when everyone's back is turned, I think the, the twist is that the guy, are we allowed to give twists away? Well, I, suppose no, I, don't, I don't think anyone's going to be able to see it anytime, the, the, any, the, anytime soon. The suggestion is uh, that actually Patrick Troughton's mechanic character sabotaged the bike. Yeah. And that's why it crashed. So then when everyone buggers off after this haunting hasn't manifested itself, you again get the very Quatermass and the Pity pity bit, a bit like uh, the, the Pauline Quirk episode of Beasts, where st and, and in fact a lot of Nigel Neer stuff, where stuff sort of flies about and it's poltergeisty and, and, and they come back in and Patrick Trout has been killed by the bits of the bike in revenge. So that's what the ghost was there for. Um, so there's a lot of sort of... It, there's it, 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 a it, there's a lot of it that is is you know very trademark Nigel Neal stuff uh, or, or within us at a, at a time when you know it was it was quite novel to do a, a, a TV play about Hell's Angels or whatever you know a motor a motorbike was quite a a, a, a a totem of the day if you like around which to to set a a, a modern ghost story and not dissimilar to. Uh, from the big, big giggle when motor motorbike deaths, or you, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he's he's always worried about what the young people are up to these days, aren't they? <laughs> it's interesting though, sort of talking about you know the, the fact that it is very much like a trade trademark ghost story, but we're still just before the stone tape at this point. They haven't really done an awful lot of that at this stuff. Yeah, he starts out writing you know radio plays about haunted telephone lines, obviously Quatermass in the pit. There's not really any supernatural element in the first couple of Quatermasters, it's the, it's the third one. And, you know, the road is kind of about this idea of is, you know, is a ghost, is a haunting real or not? He's not done an awful lot of that. And then suddenly there's quite a run of it. So this is kind of him coming back to something he's done before and then subsequently mining it quite a lot, you know, with the stone tape and with um, beasts and, you know, the woman in black and things like that, where he becomes known as, as somebody who's good at these sort of ghost stories, which he hadn't actually done a lot of before. No, the woman in black's obviously uh, an, an adaptation. Yeah. He, is there the suggestion that he was a go-to person for that type of thing, even as late as, as late as 89? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the association, isn't he? He's, he's a guy who's good at that sort of story. And that probably points more to what is remembered about him, what, is, what, what, what survives, you know, rather than what his output was like. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I suppose in that respect, does that, I know Mark Gatiss calls him like the event of popular television and talks famously about how he was every bit as good as Potter and Rosenthal and uh, Bleasdale, but because of the areas in, in, in which he wrote, they, they, aren't, they aren't as well remembered. But is that not also because, I mean, 
they often they came up from writing for theatre. Uh, so it was already seen as higher. It was already seen as more worthy than, than the, if, in the, if the ephemera of television. Therefore, when they write for television. I think because Potter's very much seen as a television dramatist. And, no, that's true, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and Vampire Zap is, is very reminiscent of Potter in the sense that you have the not necessarily benign interloper into ordinary lives who who has you know who who has a an effect on the the, the sort of family unit the sort of young visitor is quite a theme in in yeah. stuff i think it's simply because it was genre and we're snobby about genre although a lot of potter stuff has sort of slightly supernatural elements to it but he very cleverly made it look not like that or or did mm. a few light of hands or, or had a few presentation elements that were that were avant-garde that made us think about those. Um, it's simply that it was genre. It was scuppered by the fact that his greatest successes were science fiction, and we're, we're a bit snooty about that, I, I, I think. I feel we've been slightly bit unfair to the road in this because we talked about my adaptation of it rather than the actual one, which is a really interesting philosophical debate and a very well-told story of haunting, and that's very much a, a sort of horror story. It just has that amazing twist at the end that makes it... I was, I was conscious of the fact that there is this adaptation available, and hopefully the people will get them. I didn't want to necessarily spoil it in the way that... I don't realistically think we're going to be able to see Winding oh, yeah. or the Chopper anytime, anytime soon. Sure. We hopefully can. We hopefully can hear uh, your annotation of the road. You can spoil it if you want to. I'll, I'll leave that. Well, no, I know. I just think I, I got so I, I banged on about my version so much. We we didn't actually for the uninitiated sort of tell them what what it was. And, and Andy, who's the expert on these things, didn't get a chance to say a bloody thing. So no. uh, you want to say what happens in the road, Andy? <laughs> no, not so much without without. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what you know, what the the, the actual main story is about uh, about what a haunting actually is, yeah. and uh, and even if it's a traditional haunting, which in the road it turns out not to be, mm. it's a sort of crack through time through which we hear events. You know, an event. Yeah. Uh, you know, a ghost is an apparition coming through time, which I think is really interesting how a lot of Nigel Neal's work works in that, you know, the, the Martian inheritance is, is again, it's something primal and it's about how scary things are because they're old and how old things seeping into our world is somehow unnerving to us. Uh, and that's, and it's how the ancient and the fusty is somehow scarier than a green man in a tinfoil hat. There's somehow horror is so entrenched in the past and sci-fi is often so entrenched in the future. And what he cleverly does is to make sci-fi scary, which it, 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 I think often sci-fi struggles to be. I know Alien is a, but that's a sort of old-fashioned horror film in a way. But it's more, e it's easier to be scared of the past because somehow the past frightens us, chills us oddly, even though it's happened and we've survived it, than the future, which is uncertain, which is a sort of paradox. Um, it, it is. I think there's only the future can kill us, hmm. <laughs> and that's that's of course the twist of of, of the road. Yeah, right. um, but there's something um, M. R. James says when he talks about his structure structure of a ghost story that I don't necessarily agree with because I think Nigel Neal shows we're doing it that the ghost can't be too distant that it must be something you understand is only so you know it's, uh, it's for the last couple of hundred years. But the really creepy thing that you start to get oh god is when at the very end of, of the stone tape when peter throws the stuff away and says oh it's coming out with crap it's talking about four thousand years ago 
uh, yeah. and, and that's that's really horrible. Like it's the apparent it's, age of that radioactivity is five million years. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's <laughs> dude, it's oh no, it's it's it, and that's that's terrifying. That's something I can't really comprehend. It's almost like, yeah, what went before us is, is yeah. more powerful than we are, bizarre. Yeah. And I yeah. think the fact that it has survived is almost a threat to us, which is interesting because it's tapping on primal fears. And that, I think, goes to the folklore of, you know, the Isle of Man is a place steeped in folklore. And that's what's probably scared him first as a kid, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that's why he keeps being pulled back to that. The beautiful name, what is it, the Moonjar Veggie? The, folk, the, the fairies of the, of, of the Isle of Man, is that right? There's, yeah, a lot, there's quite a lot of that sort of thing because I've been I've been to the museum, the Isle of Man Museum, yeah. and they, there's got all these sort of mystical fairies and beasts and all of that sort of thing. It's very much yeah embedded in its culture. I was going to say again, I'm obsessed with titles, but I really you know the, it Neil's really good with the title, and he always embeds something in it. And obviously in the road, the idea is that there is going to be a motorway in the far future that you that there isn't here now, but it's also the road to progress, isn't it? Mm. It's also fact that they're talking a lot about science and technology and is this going to be a great thing is this going to be an awful thing and obviously the the punchline is no actually technology is going to develop this weapon which will actually kill us all you think that that's a common theme with good writers in how much thought they give to titles of pieces or is is, is that common throughout there's always in many ways it just doesn't matter or is Neil particularly you think thoughtful about, about well, well maybe it's ever since that radio play he had the title changed by the um, and he's gone right well I'm going to make Sure, not having that happen again. Do you think that that's that's a better title than the Long Stairs? What was what was the what was his Passion original title? Passion fruits. Yeah, Passion fruits. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I think the Long Stairs is a better title. It, I do, I do, I, I do as well. But then wasn't it when Richard Curtis wrote his Doctor Who? It's called The Eyes That See the Dark, wasn't it? And like um, Stephen Moffat went, that'll mean nothing to anyone. Vincent and the Doctor, tell him what it is. <laughs> like, he didn't mean to like it. But that's you see his thinking then, obviously, and to sell the story rather than as a, as, a, as a title. I suppose that's that's when you come into different forces have different motivations about what they want for their work. And a writer would want something that means something, a producer may want something that just says, this is what this story is about. Watch it. Yeah. yeah, I think Neil's good at a deceptively simple mm. title as well. That you just you you can you don't really necessarily get how much is in it until you've seen it. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Well, the, the chopper. Well, I suppose it does have Patrick Trout in it. But uh... <laughs> was he the guy? I know he was the mechanic. But is that the person that's sleeping with the girl uh, no. in, in the game? Or was that uh, a different uh, character? The, the, the lead, top billing in the chopper, goes to Anne Morris, who plays the journalist. And oh, okay. Um, yeah, that has it ever traced. Yeah, that's uh, that's George Sweeney off of Citizen Smith and uh, oh right, okay, yeah, the younger female. No, uh, yeah. the mechanic character, Trent's character, is uh, does not have any romantic liaison. Regardless, of one one final thing we haven't mentioned: Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, not obviously a Nigel Neal style adaptation, but a fairy folklore story, I suppose, may have more in common than we think about. What's that about? So it's from a strand called Bedtime Stories, and it's uh, produced by Innis Lloyd. And the idea was that it's basically adult dramas, but based quite loosely in a lot of cases on sort of fairy stories. Obviously, in this case, Jack and the Beanstalk. And this is a really interesting one because there's no kind of shred of fantasy or anything like that in this at all. It's basically about a mother and son. The dad has died. It starts off with, I think the son's going off to university and on the train he gets talked out of going to university by a stranger he meets on the train. So that's the kind of magic beans, go back home to your mother, empty-handed kind of element of the Jack and the Bean story. But basically the whole thing is that he, the boy has memories of his dad, has memories of things like climbing up onto the table, peering over the top of the table to look at his dad, who is like a giant. 
and his mother has convinced him that his dad was this awful, awful man who was you know, terrible to her. But actually, it transpires that when the son uh, happens to meet old friends of the of the family and old friends of the father, that actually he was really nice and he really doted on the son. And the mother didn't want the son. And actually, his mother has, uh, in the words of the Scottish comedian Limmy, he's turned the wains against us. And you know, he's he's basically made the uh, the the son think that the father was this awful monster but actually he wasn't and it kind of ends with the son going off having made peace with his dead father and it's very very unusual for me so yes I, th I think i'd mix this up with the the, the late night tales that he done the this is this is a yeah oh it's done by the chap it's directed by the chap who did the um the first doom watch as well this is, so again this is bedtime stories so this is 1974 this is an insloid series he'd done he'd done the stone tape as well hadn't he yeah so this is literally the last kind of thing that he writes before he, he vanishes off to ITV yeah. for good, really, that this is kind of the last thing that he, he does for the BBC. And what was the significance of the shift of, of the BBC to the, finally, I know they've been dalliance before, they've been films, he'd done the crunch, but what finally sees him? Um, is, it, there's no more after BBC after this, is there? No, well, there's things like, you know, the, the Quasar's memoirs for the radio, no, yeah, sure, nothing, yeah. nothing kind of that you can compare to it. Um, I think kind of as, as we have touched on before, he didn't have a great relationship with the BBC and then he came back to them in the late 60s and to kind of mend their relationship is still a bit fragile. And then around this point, you get him being commissioned to write the fourth Quatermass. That doesn't get made. He writes another script called Cracks, which is going to be a play for today, which doesn't get made. And I think there are just kind of a few too many disappointments. So in the end, it's just like, oh, right. <laughs> forget it uh, and just happens to have an offer from ITV I don't think it was a plan I think it just so happened that he got an offer from ITV worked for ITV was quite happy there and just carried on with that from there on in and you know we, we are slightly tongue-in-cheek about Nigel Neal occasional grumpiness but it's been really interesting going over all of his stuff and seeing as Andy has, has brilliantly pointed out um, and with great expertise and detail the various things that didn't happen. Those are frustrating when you're a writer. And in the current climate, when there's loads of writers, there were few, you know, um, and so few slots, that's frustrating. Then when there were more slots and it was a bit easier to get commissioned, I think if you're the Quatermass guy and you're as frustrated as sort of somebody like me is now, who's a much smaller fish in a much larger pond and... Uh, opportunities are really much much harder to reach fruition i think if you're the quatermass guy in the early 70s and stuff isn't getting made i think a certain furiousness is sort of justified because he was a great he wasn't just a good writer; he was a giant of television uh, and you would think if you'd and, and when i was growing up quatermass was spoken of in hallowed terms you know and when he has a new play this would go he's the guy that did quatermass quatermass was huge and yes he had the rankles about the rights and all of that sort of thing but still everyone was in no doubt as to quatermass's place in in popular culture and yet 10 years 11 years later that guy is having stuff that's getting a certain certain way and then not being made I think, he had, I think he had some justification for feeling as though he'd perhaps not been dealt the hand that he, he should have been. And that explains, therefore, why, you know, somebody like Judith was so pleased. I felt so like such a fraud, which was like, well, it's just so nice that you're keeping Tom's name alive. And it's like, no, it is alive. 
yeah. to people like in mainstream conversations about television he should be spoken in the same breath as dennis potter so, i mean sadly now modern television critics probably would struggle to know who he was so that's i mean that uh. opens up a, a much wider conversation but this is not you know this should not be confined to you know to cultishness to geeks this this in in terms of the broad history of television and original television drama nigel neal is a giant and a pioneer so the fact that even in his lifetime that reverence wasn't there i think tells us a lot about the unfairness of, of a lot of you know how television and and creative industries work does this does the 70s uh, and the 80s as he goes does he works lots of, does the itv stuff give him a second wind with the public do you think that's i mean before quatermass comes as almost as a the frustrating thing about the, the, the use of the films quite a mass is that it, a lot of the ideas that seem more 73 than they do 79. Obviously it's delayed for a long way. It was made yeah, like a year before. But um, does the, the, the Moraine beasts, does that give him you know, a, a new wind, a new different people, a, a, a new generation of fans sounds a bit, a new appeal? I think it gives his career a second wind and that yeah. he's getting work i'm not sure how many people were tuning into you know sharps gold thinking oh great it's by the quatermass guy um so i don't know if if he was appreciated in that way he was getting work and even if you look at the fact that you know his first tv credits are early 50s the last ones are towards the end of the 90s that's a hell of a long career for anybody the fact that he was still getting work after all those years is pretty incredible really whether or not he was getting the respect that he deserved maybe you know whether he was getting the commissions that he deserved maybe not but he was certainly getting work once again our thanks to andy and toby and you also heard from toby's dog bernard thank you for your contribution broadcast is presented by john Dave and howard Ingham and is edited by Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening.